guys and welcome to another episode of the red-haired stokey thank you all for tuning in last week today we're going to be talking about william palmer now for those of you that don't know who william palmer is he's actually a notorious staffordshire serial killer this is a bit more of the dark side of 19th century staffordshire and William Palmer is actually one of the most famous serial killers in British history but most people seem to have forgotten about him so we're going to talk in about him a little bit more because he was known as the Rugeley Poisoner or the Prince of Poisoners and he was born on August the 6th 1824 and though his name might not ring a bell to you now Charles Dickens actually called him the greatest villain that ever stood in the Old Bailey. So he was genuinely famous, people knew him all around the world. His crimes were reported upon in the newspapers all over the world. He was actually tried in London. What did he actually do? Well, he was actually convicted for murdering his friend, John Cook, in 1855. And he was executed in public by hanging the following year. The cause of death was strychnine poisoning and he was not only suspected of killing Cook but also his own family members. He actually lost four children to convulsions, well, convulsions before his first birthday and his brother and his mother-in-law also met on timely deaths, both also suspected to have been poisoned. But he was a man with a plan. He, he had large sums of money from his, the death of his wife and his brother. He collected on their insurance policies. He took out life policies for them. He also defrauded his wealthy mother out of thousands and thousands of pounds, which he then lost through gambling and drinking. But what made him do it? Was it greed? Was it a power thing? Did he enjoy it? We're going to have a little talk about it today um, and see what you think. We'll talk a little bit about you know, who he was, where he came from, and then we'll go through some of the things that he did. And if you do fancy a day out, you can go to Rugeley, and a lot of the places that he lived, the house he was born in, are all still standing. Um, John Cook's grave is in the graveyard of the church there. And after this episode, after this show, you can go onto my blog, which is The Red Haired Stokey. And when you go onto my blog, a bit later on, this article will be written on there. And there's some photographs on there as well, some drawings from the Times newspaper that are illustrated of his, um, his trial and things like that. So go and have a look at that afterwards. Right, so let's have a little talk about where he came from. He was born in Rugeley in Staffordshire, which is not that far away from Stoke-on-Trent, if you're not from the area. Um, and he was the sixth of eight children, which was pretty common in those days. Bernard he was born in 1824, so it wasn't out of the ordinary to have a huge family then. His father, Joseph Palmer, was a sawyer, and he passed away when William was just 12. Now, after his father's death, his mother inherited a legacy of £70,000, 
which would play quite a significant role in his life. I mean, £70,000 back in the 1800s was a significant amount of money. It's still a significant amount of money now. So you can imagine with inflation just how much that was. But, you know, her children still went out and worked. She didn't keep them. And as a teenager, William actually worked as an apprentice at a Liverpool chemist. Now, whilst he was good at the job, he was dismissed after just three months due to allegations of theft. Now, these allegations of theft were never proven, but nevertheless, he was dismissed. And so from there, he took a liking to the profession and he went to London, where he qualified as a physician in August 1846. So, a fully qualified doctor, he decided it was time to come back and he returned to Rugeley, to Staffordshire, but he went across to Little Haywood in, near Stafford and it was there he met a local plumber by the name, uh, plumber and glazier by the name of George Abley at the Lamb and Flag public house, which is still there. If you drive through Little Haywood, you can't miss the Lamb and Flag. Again, there is a picture on the blog if you want to go and take a look and the pub is still there so you can go and have a drink in there as well. So it was in this pub that William challenged George to a drinking contest. Um, about an hour later, George was carried home and you think, well, you know, maybe William was really, really good at drinking. Maybe uh, George had had a few too many and he just couldn't quite cope with it, but you know, he actually died that evening in his bed. And although nothing was ever proven, the locals did note that William had a bit of a, a bit of an interest in George's attractive wife. And while nothing ever came of it, there was never any proof that he killed him. It was only um, it was only surmised later on after everything that happened that he could have killed him. But again, it was never proven. So nothing ever came from George's wife. And William actually ended up marrying a local lady called Anne Thornton, who was originally Anne Brooks, on the 7th of October 1847 in St Nicholas Church, Abbots Bromley. Now, William tended to go where the money was, and Anne's mother had inherited a fortune of £8,000 after Colonel Brooks committed suicide in 1834. Now, we know that Anne's mother borrowed money to William um, but unfortunately she died about two weeks after coming to stay with William but her death was recorded as apoplexy so again no one actually knows what happened but the circumstances are very suspicious and again it all adds up when you hear the whole story in terms of money he was a prolific gambler throughout his life and as his interest in horse racing grew he needed more and more money and a doctor's salary was not a bad salary in those days um, plus obviously we didn't have the NHS back then so as he would go to patients he would charge patients for um, for treatment for drugs you know whatever so he wasn't short of money himself um, but he did meet a man called Leonard Bladen and he borrowed £600 for him. This is a guy that he met at the races 
and he came back to William's house one day on the 10th of May 1850 and you can guess it died in agony again no one was quite sure what happened the cause of death was recorded as injury of the hip joint five or six months abscess in the pelvis and the death certificate listed that William was actually there at his was actually present at the death so it gets a little bit stranger when you realize that despite he the fact that he won quite a lot of a lot of money at the races Leonard he had very little money on him when he died and his betting books were missing now this was just these few deaths are just the first of many suspicious deaths that would occur in William Palmer's life. I will add it to my blog post after this and you can go and read a little bit about him but I'm going to be talking now about his financial troubles. So obviously he liked gambling, he liked the horses and his financial troubles really did begin to pile up after he married his wife Anne. They did have five children in total but only their firstborn son William actually survived to be an adult. He actually outlived William but the rest of the children died of convulsions in their infancy and at the time 1800s it wasn't seen as suspicious. Most children didn't really make it to adulthood and convulsions was basically just a way of saying I have no idea how they died but they were having convulsions they don't know what caused the convulsions so they have no idea but as his debts started to mount up he began to take out life insurance policies on people close to him so for example he took out a large insurance policy on his wife and when she died of supposed cholera in 1854, Palmer actually received a payout of £13,000 from the insurance company. Now, £13,000 in 1854 was a significant amount of money. But his debts still continued to mount. I mean, there's, I, I couldn't find any records of how much money this guy spent gambling, but to have received £13,000 from your wife's death whilst being paid as a qualified doctor and your mother having 70 odd grand in the bank you must be gambling pretty big and it, it, it got worse <laughs> so he actually attempted to take out an insurance policy on his brother Walter to the tune of £84,000 £84,000 in the 1850s. I mean, if anybody would like to go on to an inflation calculator and work that out, that's £84,000 in the 1850s. That's a significant amount of money. Um, now, his brother had a drinking problem and he did actually die reasonably soon from drinking, apparently from drinking. But the insurance company refused to pay out on the policy. Now, it was a bit suspicious, they sent inspectors out to investigate and they found that Palmer had actually been trying to take out an insurance policy on the life of a farmer that he got working for him back in Rugeley. The company actually refused to pay out on his brother's death, which then 
triggered an investigation from the company about one, why Palmer was trying to insure so many people, and two, why he needed so much money. His life from here really just started spiraling out of control. He got an affair with his housemaid, Eliza Tharm, who then became pregnant with his illegitimate child, which didn't really help his financial problems because then he got a child he got to care for and he'd lost his housekeeper. Um, and his financial troubles were just getting worse and worse. So this is when he began to plan to murder his friend, John Cook. I say friend in the loosest term. John Parsons Cook was a wealthy young man. He'd inherited a fortune of about £12,000. And he loved the thrill of gambling and he was he was good friends with William Palmer. They, he was a fellow gambler. They loved going to the horses together, they went to the pub together, they drank together. Um, and in November 1855, both of them attended the Shrewsbury Handicap Stakes at Shrewsbury Racecourse. And Cook actually bet on a horse called Polestar at this particular race and won £3,000. He won £3,000 and Palmer, you guessed it, lost. He bet on a horse called the Chicken and well, the Chicken didn't win. After the race, they went to a local drinking establishment, a little pub called The Raven. Um, but Cook fell ill. Drinking in The Raven and Cook soon fell ill. He was complaining that the gin had burnt his throat. But Palmer kicked off basically, he made a scene, insisting that there was nothing wrong with Cook's glass. He was just being dramatic, he was drunk. But Cook was violently sick. And I think at this point he was suspecting that Palmer had dosed him, basically. So Cook returned to Rugeley, booked a room at the Talbot Arms where he met Palmer again. And the Talbot Arms was opposite um, Palmer's house. So the Talbot Arms is still standing in Rugeley Town Centre. Again, if you go onto the blog, the Red Ed Stokey after this, you'll be able to see a picture of it now. And the building opposite that, which is shops now, was actually Palmer's house, it's still standing. So Cook returned to Rugeley, booked a room at the Talbot Arms, and he met up with Palmer again. And Palmer took responsibility for Cook's well-being, and Cook's solicitor sent over a bottle of gin. So a chambermaid actually took a sip of the gin and became ill. Which, to me, says, you know, Palmer's tried to slip something in his gin to kill him. Um, and in the meantime, Cook's vomiting became worse. So Cook's at home, in bed, Palmer's looking after him, because he's a doctor, remember? It's not strange, everybody thinks he's a doctor and he's okay and he's looking after his poorly friend. So, whilst Cook is bedridden at the Talbot Arms, Palmer's out collecting Cook's bets because he gambles quite a lot and he's got outstanding money that he is collecting. So he collected a total of about £1,200. And then he went to Dr. Salt's surgery and purchased three grains of strychnine, put them into two pills, and gave these two pills to Cook, who thought they were some kind of medicine to make him better. And on November the 21st, Cook died in agony at the Talbot Arms, screaming that he was suffocating. So that was really the first 
of a, of it was basically the beginning of the end for Palmer because Cook's stepfather arrived to represent the family and sort everything out for Cook and Palmer informed him that Cook had actually lost his betting books which were no use because all bets were cancelled once the gambler had died anyway um, but he'd also got no money and Palmer being the doctor went and obtained a death certificate listing the cause of death again as apoplexy but this is where it gets a little bit strange because there was a post-mortem examination and it was overseen by um, a local doctor Dr Harland and a medical student Charles Devonshire and an assistant Charles Newton but Palmer interfered with the examination so he actually took the stomach stomach contents in a jar and he took them away for safekeeping the jars were then sent off to Alf, Alfred Swain Taylor who complained that the samples were of a very poor quality so even though it wasn't strange for him to be at the post-mortem because he was a doctor he interfered in a way that was extremely suspicious and Palmer actually then took it one step further he wrote to the coroner himself requesting that the verdict of death be given as natural causes and actually tried to bribe the coroner he sent a £10 note and tried to bribe the coroner but there was no evidence of poison um, they couldn't find any evidence because the stomach contents had been tampered with but they still believed that Cook had been poisoned and the jury at the inquest actually delivered the verdict stating that Cook was poisoned by Palmer so again this is where it all went downhill for him so we're up to the part now where William Palmer's killed his friend Cook who is buried in Rusa you can actually go and see his grave if you check out my blog which is the red-haired Stokey after this you'll be able to see a picture of his gravestone I've popped on there so Palmer was arrested and he was detained at Stafford Jail. Now it's funny really because he was actually detained because a creditor had reported him because he was suspicious that he'd for it, it was suspicious that he had forged his mother's signature. So he was arrested, he was taken to Stafford Jail, which again is still standing today, it's, it's that jail. Now William Palmer didn't like this, so he threatened to go on a hunger strike because he said he was being falsely detained. But he backed down pretty quickly after being informed that he would be force-fed. Now, because of his standing in the local community, an Act of Parliament was actually passed to move his trial to the Old Bailey in London. Because it was... I mean, Staffordshire was a much smaller place then. Everyone was pretty close, everybody did everybody's business, and it was pretty impossible to find a fair jury in Staffordshire because the local newspapers had been printing detailed accounts of the case and of the deaths of his children, his wife, etc. So, you know, the newspapers basically naffed everything up, you know, just like they do today. So, it was moved to the Old Bailey because of this, but some people did believe that it was moved for political reasons to secure a guilty verdict. 
make of that what you will. Politics, local newspapers, it's a bit, nothing's much changed in the area. <laughs> but when the trial began, they started looking back across his life and the suspicious deaths that had surrounded him. And the Home Secretary actually ordered the exhumation and the re-examination of the bodies of his brother and sister. Now, the organs of his wife's um, body were actually found to contain antimony, and she was suspected of dying of strychnine poisoning. Unfortunately, his brother's body was too badly composed, they couldn't find what they needed. Um, with all of this evidence, Palmer needed a good defence. So he took on a defence lawyer, and his name was Mr. Sergeant William Shee. But he did face criticism from the judge for telling the jury that he personally believed Palmer to be innocent. The prosecution team, on the other hand, proved to be forceful advocates. They absolutely demolished the defence witness, Jeremiah Smith, and his testimony, and circumstantial evidence came to light, including eyewitness accounts of Palmer actually purchasing strychnine and chemists admitting to selling him the poison without recording it in their books, which was the law at the time. So even though he was a doctor, he, everything that he went to a chemist to purchase had to be written down in a book. And it was because these were, these were poisons. And a lot of the poisons in those days had different uses. Some were used in household things, some were used to get rid of pests and rats, some were used as cleaning agents. Some were used for health benefits in small amounts, but all taken in the wrong hands and given, you know, high doses could be used as poison. So that's why you had to record in the book, the chemist, who you sold it to and how much and the date. But why didn't the chemist write it down? Probably because he was a doctor. I mean, this was a man of a high social standing in Rugeley, in Staffordshire. He was well known. He was well liked, to be fair. You know, the testimonies from people at the trial, he was he was reasonably well liked. Everybody knew him. They drank with him in the pub. Um, they knew he'd got a gambling problem, but that was a reasonably common thing back then, gambling and drinking. So it's not like he was doing anything out of the ordinary. And he was a doctor, so he'd helped people um, with health problems. He'd helped people that were pregnant. You know, he, he was a family doctor. But that's the only reason I can think that the chemists didn't write down what he was doing and this is again why it went so long without being picked up but luckily they did um, testify in court that they had not recorded it but they had sold it to him otherwise this trial would have had a very different outcome I think. Now during the trial um, his financial circumstance was elaborated and a man called Thomas Pratt, who was a money lender, testified that he had loaned money to Palmer at a ridiculously high interest rate of 60%. And the bank manager at the trial um, did verify that he only, Palmer had £9 in his bank. Which, when you consider how much money he'd actually had through his job and the life insurance from his wife, and the life, you know, the, the money that he'd had from his mother and the money that he, all the money that he borrowed, you would think he would have more than £9, but that's genuinely how much he'd lost gambling. 
So all of this to have nine pound in the bank doesn't seem worth it really. Now, there was um, a, a big dispute in court about the cause of Cook's death. So medical witnesses on each side of the case brought their testimony in and the cause of death that was determined by the prosecution, uh, including the Alfred Swain Taylor who made the original decision, he said that it was tetanus due to strychnine. However, the defense called upon 15 medical witnesses who said that the poison could not have been the cause because it should have been found in the stomach. Now, if you remember earlier, we were talking about the autopsy after Cook had died and Palmer was at that autopsy. And if you remember, he took the stomach contents away and tampered with them so that it was an inconclusive um, result on strychnine in the stomach. So all of this was taken into account at the court, at the, at the, the trial, and the jury went away with all of this evidence and it took them just over an hour to come back with a guilty, a guilty, um, yeah, they found him guilty basically. And Lord Campbell, who was overseeing the trial, handed down a death sentence and Palmer just didn't react. He had no reaction whatsoever. He stood in the dark and he was pretty nonchalant about it. So, yeah, so this was in London, but he was brought back to Stafford. Um, he was brought back to Stafford for his execution. And it was a public hanging in, and it was on the 14th of June, 1856. And it was by a man called George Smith. And there was, it was held outside the front gates of Stafford Prison. You know, the big, the gate, when you go to Stafford Prison, you'll see there's a big gate at the front. It was basically in front of there. And because it was such a notorious case, because it had been in papers up and down the country, there was over 30,000 spectators. Morbid, yes. Would we all do the same today? Probably. But as he stepped onto the gallows, Palmer reportedly looked at the trapdoor and was worried. He, he said, are you sure it's safe? Which at that point seemed a little bit pointless. But before his execution, the prison governor asked Palmer to confess his guilt, which up to this point he had not done. He'd been found guilty, he'd been prosecuted, he was going for his execution, but he never actually admitted it. And there was an interesting exchange of words between the prison governor and William Palmer. So Palmer said, Cook did not die of strychnine. And the governor said, this is no time for quibbling. Did you or did you not kill Cook? And Palmer returned with, the Lord Chief Justice summed up for poison by strychnine. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> so he basically said, I'm not telling you what I think it was summed up and that's the answer you're not getting anything else so he was denying basically that he had killed him but despite that denial he was hanged he was hung outside Stafford prison and he was buried in inside the grounds he was buried beside the prison chapel in a grave that was filled with quicklime and after the execution his mother reportedly said they have hanged my saintly Billy but we know what mothers can be like with the sons. 
so we're not ones to judge. But the story doesn't end there. Shortly after the execution, uh, there was a newspaper, a local newspaper, that reported that the rope that was used to hang Palmer was being sold in Scotland as an interesting relic. And there was quite a lot of people um, that were interested in it. And you can still actually find bits of this rope for sale online now, <laughs> for like 150 years later. Um, and the rope was reportedly selling for five shillings per inch. Was this his rope? Probably not. It was literally any rope you could find. Um, did the guy selling it make a lot of money? Yeah, probably. That's what you call an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, because it was it was such a massive case. I mean, back when this was in the papers, it didn't interest people quite as much as Jack the Ripper because Jack the Ripper was never caught and that was what prolonged it till now. But there was that much media interest back then that yeah, the newspapers were reporting on it in the time that he was caught over the court case and things. It was in the papers as much as the Jack the Ripper story was. And that's what makes this so interesting is because now hardly anybody knows his name. There's a couple of things about him in Rugeley and if you google his name there's multiple articles about it. Um, but there is a few things that he's left as a legacy and we'll come on to that in a minute. Just one extra point that's interesting to note. Um, some scholars actually believe, even now, that the evidence presented at the trial shouldn't have been enough to convict Palmer. Even after that, regardless of whether you think he was guilty or not, a piece of evidence actually came up in 1946, so nearly 100 years later, um, that would have sealed his fate had it been found in time. And it was actually a prescription for opium that was written in his own handwriting for um, a, a client, for a, a, you know. But on the reverse of this prescription was a chemist's bill for 10 pence worth of strychnine and opium. So even though there was absolutely no physical hard evidence of him buying strychnine, because if you remember, the chemist never wrote it down, he actually did write it down. Um, it was on, it was a chemist's bill, so the chemist had actually written him a bill of sale, which is basically a receipt, for ten pence worth of strychnine opium. Unfortunately, it was a hundred years later that that evidence came to light, so it was pretty useless, but it does basically prove his guilt. It does prove that, you know, the jury were collecting and finding him guilty. So, just a couple of extra points. He has left a bit of a legacy, and there are bits and bobs you can find about it. So, one of the first things is, in Charles Dickens' Bleak House, there is a character called Inspector Bucket. And I don't know if anybody's read Bleak House or watched the BBC series. Um, but Inspector Bucket is reputed to be based on Charles Frederick Field who was the policeman who investigated Palmer's death for his insurers. And Dickens actually went to Palmer's trial. He did call him the greatest villain that ever stood in the Old Bailey. 
so that's an interesting one is that he actually based a character on someone in the case and we know that Charles Dickens did like to base his characters on people that he knew and met so I find that very interesting um, another interesting point is when you go to the bar and you have a drink some people will say what's your poison as in what would you like to drink and this is thought to be a reference to the events it's it's because obviously he killed Cook in the pub with an alcoholic drink what's your poison is supposed to have been a reference so now talking about morbid things and how we all you know people love being a bit morbid we are in the potteries it's Stoke-on-Trent Stoke-on-Trent is famous for making pottery so what did we do in true pottery style in 1856 there was actually a souvenir house, a pottery house made of William Palmer's house that he was born in. It was a Georgian house, it still stands today in Rugeley, and it was painted in enamel and gold. And you can actually find this in the Potteries Museum. It's actually there, it's it's still there. Um, which I find really, really morbid. I mean, I love the fact that us Stokies will literally make anything out of pottery. And that was back in 1856. Who who would who would have bought that? I would love to know. I bet so many people's nans had that knocking about in the attic and just thought, oh, it's just another house. No, that's a serial killer's house. That's like having Ted Bundy's car made out of pottery and keeping it on your mantelpiece. They're just fucking weird. But anyway. But yeah, you can actually find that in the Potteries Museum in Hanley, so if you want to go and take a look. And another thing that is in a museum is Tamworth Castle. I've actually got a cabinet. Now this cabinet was... It belonged to William Palmer. And it was actually a medicine cabinet. So... The contents of the cabinet, I'm not going to go into all of it, but... You know, it had things like a baby feeder, a metal balance, glass bottles with the stopper, different kinds of powders, Epsom salts, um, uh, metal measurements, glass measurements, and then there's some glass doors, and there was more bottles in there, I think. Um, you know, little drippers, stoppers. I think there was a brass measuring spoon, some more glass bottles, some more powders. Um, and there wasn't really any labels or anything on them, but you can actually see this at Tamworth Museum, at Tamworth Castle, which again is fascinating. And it, nobody really knew it was there. I think they discovered it and found out what it was. And there is a report of his bag, his medicine bag, with all the little glass bottles and all these things that used to be a doctor, in the High House in Stafford at that museum. So that's another interesting one. So not everyone's forgotten about him. It's just that he's gone out of out of the limelight, basically. One last interesting fact is that there was actually a film made about William Palmer in 1998. And it's actually called, it's a two-part series, really, more than a film. It's called The Life and Crimes of William Palmer. And Keith Allen actually played the part of Palmer. Now, I haven't actually watched this, and I, but I won't going to. I, I just haven't had the time yet. But apparently it's really accurate. Um, 
So if you want to know more about this story, you can go onto my blog, which is The Red Haired Stokey, and there will be an article up about this where you can have a look at some of the pictures and you know drawings of the trial, pictures of where things happened. But if you if you go to the bottom, I have linked a couple of interesting books. But even better, if you want to go and watch the movie, I have found a copy of it on Amazon. You, you can buy the DVD. Other than that, I can't really find where to watch it. So if anybody does discover where you can watch this film, or if anyone's got it on DVD or at home or something, please do let me know because I would genuinely love to see this. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try and find it again. But yeah, so that was William Palmer, the Staffordshire serial killer, and I think he should have more notoriety than he does because to kill that many people for money, for gambling, to me is a, is a, is a different kind of callous. That is a case of people just being, indi just being dispensable. It's not necessarily that he decided he was going to kill all these people. It's not even that he went round and brutally murdered people. It's not that kind of murder. They were just dispensable. He just needed money. And I find that horrific. Especially his family, his you know, his, his own children, so he didn't have to pay to raise them. But yeah, that was William Palmer. And this is the red-haired Stokey. But thank you very much for joining me. Like I say, don't forget to like and follow and subscribe and whatnot and head over to the Red Ed Stokey blog if you'd like to know a little bit more. But yeah, thank you very much for joining me and I will see you again next week, same time. Thank you. <laughs>